Well, while I was on sabbatical, uh, I had a chance to read a few books, and one of the books I read, the author began to spend some time pointing out um, the reality of what our lives will be remembered as when we pass away. And it was a sobering reminder as the author began to talk about that there will be a funeral or memorial service for most of us, most likely, and people will say really nice things unless you were just a complete jerk. They'll say the nicest things they can come up with. And then shortly thereafter, the author goes on to say, your life will be reduced to one sentence. You'll have a one-sentence reputation for the vast majority of what's left. He said, think about it. Someone comes up to you and says, I'm so sorry about your father. He was a really funny guy. Or I'm so sorry about your mom. She was one of the sweetest, kindest people I knew. Or I'm sorry about your friend. She was incredibly generous. And by and large, the fact that our lives will be reduced to one sentence reputation. That was a sobering reality to read. I began to process that and think about it and think, what would my one sentence be? The hard part is, if you ask people, most likely they're going to tell you something that's better than what may be reality, because they don't want to hurt your feelings. So I thought, how am I going to figure out what my one sentence has been? So it just turns out that next year in 2020, we have our 20th high school reunion. I thought, well, what better way than to go back to my senior yearbook and look at all the things that people wrote and begin to say, can I see a theme of what my one sentence was to those people? So I went back to that yearbook. I began to read and look at it and see what people had written. By the way, if you want to see pictures of our worship pastor, Kurt Prater, as a senior in high school, I've got a yearbook with those pictures. So just ask. I'll show them to you. Other pages will be marked out. Uh, but for, for me, I began to read these things and go, okay, there's, there's some of the things that I would expect. There's some people trying to be funny and goofy. There's some people trying to be sappy. There's some people who say we're going to be friends forever that I didn't see again after graduation, right? Like there's some of those realities. But I began to look for themes. I thought I'd find them, and I did. And I could reduce what they had written in my yearbook to one statement. Kurt's a great guy who's a good example. Kurt's a great guy who sets a good example. And I began to think about that and go, you know, it's not bad. That's good. But at the end of my life, is that all that I want to be said about me? That he's a great guy who sets a good example. And this morning, as we look in the book of Colossians, Paul is going to begin this letter by pointing out the reputation of the church at Colossae and beginning to lay out what that reputation means and what he wants for them. And so if you've got your words, we're going to go to Colossians chapter 1. And while you're flipping, I want to remind you that the book of Colossians is written in such a way that Paul is specifically addressing an issue that had come up within this church. There was some teaching that was diminishing the authority and headship of Christ. And so Paul writes this letter to point to the authority and supremacy of Christ. And so we're going to look at the first half of this book this week. We're going to look at the second half, first half of this chapter, the second half of this chapter next week. But I don't want us to skip over the first 14 verses and miss what Paul is saying about the Colossian church. So beginning in verse 1, Paul, an apostle of Christ Jesus, by God's will and Timothy our brother, to the saints in Christ at Colossae, who are faithful brothers and sisters, grace to you and peace from God our Father. We always thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, when we pray for you. 
For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. You've already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world, just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You learn this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf, and he has told us about your love in the Spirit. So verses 1 and 2, you've got the typical greeting, right, that Paul uses frequently of him being an apostle of Christ, and we know that Timothy is a part of this greeting with him, and the reputation of them being, of the church at Colossae being faithful brothers and sisters. And then let's look at verse 3. We thank God, the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, and we pray for you. There's a gratitude in their heart when they pray for the Colossian church. Why? Verse 4. Here's their one sentence reputation. For we have heard of your faith in Christ Jesus and of the love you have for all the saints because of the hope reserved for you in heaven. Right, do you see that? What, what's their one sentence reputation? It's that they have faith in Christ and they love the saints. They love people. Why do they have that kind of love? Why do they have that kind of faith? Because of the hope. We've heard these three key words before. Faith, hope, and love, right? These three remain faith, hope, and love. Paul's written that in 1 Corinthians. But their reputation does that sound something like you hear us talk about regularly, that we would love God and love people and help others do the same? Think about Their reputation was they had faith in Christ and they loved people. See, when I started processing this passage, I started thinking about me personally. What's my one-sentence reputation? But the reality is this passage is about the reputation of the church. What is the one-sentence reputation of that church? So it's been interesting at times to walk around Georgetown and talk to people and begin to ask them, what do you know about First Baptist Georgetown? And to hear their one-sentence reputations about who we are. Frequently, people that don't have much interaction with, with church or church people will say, oh, that's the big church on 29. Yep. We, that's us. There's other times we... We'll talk to people, I'll talk to someone, and, and people from within this body have loved them so well. They go, that is a loving group of people because they have cared for me in my time of need. But it's interesting for us to think about. That ought to be some of your conversations in your small groups or with other people. What is our one-sentence reputation in the community? What do people think of when they think of FBG? Is it what we want them to think of? Because see, our reputation, my individual reputation ought to be brought to the table for the reputation of God's people together collectively. And so as Paul tells them, this is your reputation as a church, he goes on to tell them that there's a reputation that is the source of why they can have the one-sentence reputation that they have. Look at what he says next. You have already heard about this hope in the word of truth, the gospel that has come to you. It is bearing fruit and growing all over the world just as it has among you since the day you heard it and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You know what Paul just said? He's like, hey, you've got this great reputation of having faith in Christ and loving people. 
Let me tell you why you have that reputation. Because you have been subservient, you have submitted yourself to the reputation of the gospel. And you know what the reputation of the gospel is? It is bearing fruit all over the world. It's borne fruit right where you are, and it's bearing fruit to the ends of the earth. They're able to have a reputation that matters because they've built it on something that's bigger than themselves, and that is the gospel of Jesus Christ. See, when you and I hear of what the gospel is doing all around the world, you know what that does? That energizes the body of believers. You know what he's going to go on to say there towards the end of, of that section in verse 7? He says, you learn this from Epaphras, our dearly loved fellow servant. He's a faithful minister of Christ on your behalf. He's told us about your love in the Spirit. What's happening is you have this mutual movement of, of encouragement of how the gospel is moving at the church at Colossae, and it's coming back to Paul and going back to the church at Colossae, and there is mutual encouragement happening because the gospel is spreading and building roots. You find yourself in a place where you get frustrated about your faith in God, Tell you, one of the greatest things you can do is to begin to pay attention to what the gospel is doing right now around the world. In our community, in our county, and to the ends of the earth. Because when you begin to hear of stories of countries where they say that you cannot carry the gospel here, you cannot speak about that Jesus because we don't believe him here. And then all of a sudden the gospel's taking root and bearing fruit in that place where they're trying to squelch it out. That is energizing and encouraging. It's like taking a seed, putting it in the worst possible soil for that particular seed and saying, let's see if it grows. If you and I plant a seed in soil like that, it's not going to grow. But when the gospel's planted in seed like that, God begins to do his work and it flourishes and thrives. And that energizes God's people. So there's a reputation that is bigger than the reputation that you and I carry by ourselves. There's a reputation that we live for, that our church ought to be known by, that is bigger than just the reputation of what we want maybe for our church, but it is the gospel of Jesus Christ that is worthy of every ounce of our effort. As Paul is encouraged by Epaphras about what's happening at the Colossian church, Paul's going to talk about what that does in his heart, beginning in verse 9. And we're going to begin to camp in these verses. It says, For this reason also, since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. Now that sounds like a pretty innocuous statement. Since the day we heard this, we haven't stopped praying for you. But think about what that means. A group of people that Paul has never been to He's never met. He's heard about what the gospel is doing in their lives. And he says, we can't stop praying for you. Think about that. When was the last time you were so overwhelmed and burdened to pray for somebody where the gospel is working that you've never met and you just couldn't stop praying for them? If we want to know what our one sentence that we're living for really is, go back and make a list of the things that you're praying for. 
You know what your reputation is really all about? And what, what motivates you and me for what we want to live for? Go back and look at what you pray for. Because if it is built on the gospel spreading and thriving and growing and bearing fruit, then we begin to see that the one thing we're living for is something bigger than ourselves. But if everything on my prayer list is about me, guess what I'm living for? Me. And Paul has this burden to pray for those who he's never even met because he's just heard the gospel is thriving there. So for us as a church, when we talk about people who are sent to carry the gospel, you know who we're talking about? Every single one of us. We're all called to go. We all go to our neighbors. We all go to our work. We all go to our families. We all go to different places, but God has called all of us to go. God's called some of us to go further. Some are going to different places around the county carrying the gospel. And God's called others to go to the ends of the earth. But when God calls others to go to the ends of the earth, that does not mean that our partnership for the sake of the gospel in that place ends. It means it has just begun. And the church as a whole is a part of carrying the gospel to that place. One of the things I love about this church is that when we send people out, you participate in that process. And not just in the sending, but your resources, your time, your energy, your prayers. You say we are going to be about carrying the gospel to the ends of the earth. And it is incredibly encouraging. And Paul, when he says we haven't stopped praying for you, that reminds me and peaks in my heart the reality that when we talk about praying for people, and investing in what God is doing, whether it be um, in our neighborhoods or our community or the ends of the earth. You know what tends to happen? We tend to think of prayer as passive and everything else as active. Right? If I give of my resources, that's active. If I pray, that just doesn't feel like I'm doing very much. And what the word of God says over and over again is that the prayer of a righteous man avails much. There's something that happens when God's people say prayer is not a secondary thing, it is a primary thing and we are going to be invested together toward that end to see the gospel move. God answers those prayers. And so when we send, we ought to be a praying people. And in our home groups and life groups, we ought to be a praying people. Because when so-and-so in our small group is sent to the, the person that's in the cubicle next to them at work, guess what happens? We all gather and pray together for that person because that person is sent to carry the gospel to their coworker, And we are burdened just as much for that coworker as we are anybody else. Prayer is not passive. It is very, very active. But look at what Paul begins to pray for them. It's very telling what he prays for about them. The end of verse 9, we're asking that you may be filled with the knowledge of his will and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. He wants them to know the will of God. 
I want you, he's praying that they would know God's will and have the wisdom and spiritual understanding to be able to live that out. Don't you and I pray for that same thing? God, I want to know your will. I want to know what you have for me. I want to know what you've called us to so that we can make sure we're walking right in line with you. Here's what can happen when we're praying about God's will. We can get focused on the minute choices, the small pieces. Like, do I take this job or do I take this job? Are we supposed to move here or are we supposed to move here? Which restaurant are we supposed to eat at after church? God, this one or this one? That's a big decision. And those are all things the Lord wants us to pray about, but look at it in light of the bigger picture. If we want to know God's will, he said, know my word, because my word is my will. And as we know his word, what does his word say? He wants us to love him with all our heart, mind, soul, and strength. And the second is like it, love your neighbor as yourself. Those two are mutually connected to one another. So what happens then is, Lord, I want to do your will. When I start praying for which job to take, if I will align my life with loving you and loving people, then whichever job I take, I can carry the gospel to either one. And that value becomes more important than, is this the right one or that's the wrong one? Because the other side happens too. If I'm not aligning my life with who God is and loving him and loving people, it doesn't matter which job I take, I won't align my life with him either place. And so Paul is saying, I'm praying for them they would know the will of God and all wisdom and spiritual understanding. And then he's going to give what that result would be. So that, right, here's what he wants. So that you may walk worthy of the Lord, fully pleasing to him, bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power according to his glorious might so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father who has enabled you to share in the saints' inheritance in the light. He's, so for us to remember and look at, these are the things that Paul is praying for them. Think about that. Look at that. So that you may walk worthy of the Lord. Right? All of us want to walk worthy of the Lord. We want to please him. Bearing fruit in every good work. Have we seen that phrase anywhere yet? Bearing fruit. What is bearing fruit in the first part of this passage? It is the gospel that's bearing fruit. And now Paul's saying, I want the people to bear fruit under the gospel's bearing of fruit. Right? People working toward that end. Bearing fruit in every good work and growing in the knowledge of God, being strengthened with all power. You know, there's an element of that one that we hear and we go, that's right, let's be strong. We want to be strong people. I want to do everything God wants me to do. And we skip over that next phrase, which is, according to his glorious might. Where does that strength come from? It's not my strength. If I try to muster up my strength, I'm going to fail miserably. But it is laying down, surrendering to him, saying, God, I don't have the strength, but you do. Would you help me surrender to your strength? Because you can accomplish anything. You can bear fruit out of land that has no desire to bear fruit from it. And then we submit to his great power. If we say we want to live lives worthy of the Lord, pleasing to him, I don't know about you, but I fail at that daily. And it's a daily reminder of my dependence upon the Lord and his strength. 
so that you may have great endurance and patience, joyfully giving thanks to the Father. Think about that, so that you might have great endurance and patience. You know, endurance, endurance is being able to, con- to continue moving forward even though there are obstacles in your way. Right? It's the strength to keep moving forward even though there are obstacles in the way. And patience is the ability to not respond the way that I feel in that given moment when I face those obstacles. Right? And so as a parent, there are times I need great endurance because there are obstacles to chasing the hearts of my kids. I guarantee you every day I need patience to not respond the way that I feel in a given moment. But as you think about all these things, like, look at these. These are, these are not, like, you think, if you were to really think about Paul praying for the, for the Colossian church, you might think the prayer would go something like, Lord, would you open the door so that they have no difficulties? That their lives would be, thri- that they would thrive and just be fruitful in a way that you would release them from any pressure, any difficulties, and it is just a breeze for them to live for you. You know what he prayed for instead? This, this type of prayer is like, it looks like arming for a battle. Lord, they're going to need endurance because what they're going to face, that's going to be difficult. They're going to need patience because the things that they're going to face, they're going to want to respond in a way that's not right and true and holy. And they're going to need your patience. You look at all these things. And it's like Paul is praying for them, not that their circumstances would change, but that they would be prepared in the midst of whatever circumstances may come. Because he knew that the road ahead for them was not going to be easy. Think about your life and my life. When we seek to carry the gospel, we have some inconveniences at times. Think about those that are carrying the gospel all over the world and the, the things that they face and the difficulties that they endure for the sake of the gospel. It's interesting that Paul does not speak to the physical circumstances. He speaks to the spiritual. There's a passage... In Matthew chapter 9, when Jesus has brought, a paralytic has been brought to him. And he sees the faith of the, of the people that brought the man to him. And he says, it says, in seeing their faith, he looks at the man and says, your sins are forgiven. And knowing that there were religious leaders there that were thinking, well, that's blasphemy. This guy doesn't have the authority to forgive sins. Jesus looks at those leaders and says, which is, hard, which is easier, to forgive sins or to tell him to get up and walk? And then he goes on to say, so that you might know that I have authority to forgive sins. Hey, buddy, why don't you get up, take your mat, and go home? You know why he healed the physical? so that they would know he had the authority to heal the spiritual. Why does God work in our physical? So that it can point to the spiritual. 
It's interesting that he, what Paul is doing here is saying, he's not saying, hey, don't pray for the physical. Absolutely, pray for the physical, pray for the sick, do all those things. That's completely biblical. But understand that all of those things are a part of pointing to something bigger, and that's the spiritual nature of the gospel-bearing fruit in our lives individually and to the ends of the earth. So that when we pray for the physical, it's under that reputation of the gospel. Something like, Lord, when I want you to heal this person. Our prayer is that you would heal them. You have all power and all control over their physical body. And we're begging that you would do a work in their life and that you would heal them. And as you're working, Father, would you use those circumstances, the difficult ones, and the ones when you're working in a way that, make the, that ease the difficulty, would you work so that they would know you more fully, so they would walk with you, so that the gospel is carried, and would you work in their life so that they f- know your presence in a way that leads them to never being the same, regardless of whether the, they get better, so that other people might come to know you. It's a different way of looking at it. It's a different reputation Why in the world would we give our one sentence for something like that? Say, I want to give my one sentence of my life towards Christ and towards difficulty and hardship and saying that it's not really about my physical as much as it is about the Lord working, knowing the Lord cares about every moment of the physical. He gives us the reason in verses 13 and 14. Talking about Christ, or God, He has rescued us, that the Lord, He has rescued us from the domain of darkness and transferred us into the kingdom of the Son He loves. In Him we have redemption, the forgiveness of sins. Why in the world would we put our one sentence on the line? Because of that right there. Because you and I who have believed in Christ have been moved from the domain of darkness into the inheritance as sons and daughters of the Most High King. We've been moved from unforgiven to forgiven. We've been moved from a place of to be judged to a place of inheritance. There's a phrase we might have skipped over and I intentionally waited until this point to speak to it back in verse 6. It's the second half of that verse and it says, since the day you heard it, I mean it's the gospel, and came to truly appreciate God's grace. You want to know what motivates us to giving our one sentence to the Lord? It's truly understanding the grace of God in our lives and truly appreciating it. That what was God's grace? It was Him giving us what we don't deserve. I don't deserve to be a child of God. I don't deserve to be forgiven. I don't deserve an inheritance. I don't deserve anything other than judgment. And yet God said, I love you and I will send my son to die for you so that your one sentence might matter more than one sentence. can be a part of my story that has no end 
I don't know about you, but that matters a lot more to me than just being a great guy who sets a good example. See, in high school, there was another reputation I had on the sports teams. I played basketball and baseball, and in those arenas, there was something about me that just drove me to a place where I wanted to be the guy that nobody worked harder than I did. Nobody hustled harder, nobody ran harder, nobody stayed later, nobody worked more. That was just in my blood. I just wanted to be the guy that worked the hardest. I wasn't going to be the best athlete on the court, but nobody was going to work harder than me. And if you ask those coaches and those players at the end of that year what my reputation was, it's no surprise what it would be. He's the hardest worker we have on the team. There was a difference between that reputation and the reputation that I had in high school, which was the other reputation just kind of fell on me. I just kind of lived my life, and that was the reputation that came. Great guy who sets an example. The other reputation, I wasn't seeking reputation as much as I was seeking to be who I wanted to be. And that was a guy that worked hard. And guess what happened? The reputation fell on me based on who I was and who I was intentionally striving to be. What I can imagine none of us in here would want is to get to the end of our lives and say, my one sentence just fell on me. We'd much rather say, I intentionally chased what was valuable to me and what mattered most. And then allow that one sentence to fall in line with that. But it takes intentionality. It takes intentionality. So that if I as an individual and focused on living for the glory of God, that I love God and love people in such a way, and then bring that to this body of Christ, right? And in turn, I bring that to my family, and then my family has intentionality. That's one of the great things about the family discipleship plan. If you have not been working on that plan, the family discipleship team would love to help you work on that. There are resources on the website for that. What is the purpose of that? It's not to make your life more daunting, it's actually very simple and very easy. The purpose of that is to give you intentionality so that when your kids leave the home or when your um, family, whatever that looks like, changes, whatever the case may be in your family, that the one sentence that's said about your family is what you intended to be said about your family because you lived in such a way intentionally that moved in that direction. More often than not, we just exist because chaos reigns. But when there's intentionality, what that plan can do is help us look forward and say, that's where we want to be, that's what matters most, so how do we live intentionally that direction? So if we're doing that as individuals and we're doing that as families and we bring that collectively here as a church and then we are living intentionally out in our community and living intentionally to the ends of the earth carrying the gospel, guess what happens? People come back and say, you know that church, FBG? There is something about them that they love God and they love people and I've heard about them on the other side of the world. And you know what they're really saying more than that is the gospel is bearing fruit in Georgetown, Texas and in Williamson County and I can't help but celebrate what God's doing. I don't know about you, but that's the kind of one sentence I want to hear. So as we go about living our lives intentionally, How are you going to move your one sentence in the direction you want it to be?
Ask someone this week what they thought their one sentence would be right now with a group of people that are around them. And they said, I think that would be that I don't like them very much. That's what they would say about me. And I asked them, I said, what's the one sentence you want them to say about you? He said that I love God. I said, well, then we've got some realignment, don't we? So for each of us to look at our lives and submit it to the Lord and say, I am learning to truly appreciate God's grace so that I might align my life with him in such a way that I live for what matters most.